my name is Joanna Gaines. I'm a doctoral epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm here today to talk about something that has been in the news a lot recently, and it's definitely something that may be affecting a lot of you as you travel throughout the world. I'm going to be speaking today about emerging and re-emerging vector-borne viral illnesses, and I'm going to be focusing on four specific diseases caused by four viruses called chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika. I have no financial information to disclose, and I will not discuss the off-label use or investigational use of any in my presentation. And also, these are sort of the learning objectives. Uh, We were told to put these in sort of specifically for pharmacists who are looking for continuing education credit, but this does apply to all of you in the audience. Um, And hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll all be able to identify the common symptoms of chikungunya, dengue, yellow fever, and Zika, as well as describing preventive measures for these mosquito-borne viral illnesses and describing your treatment options for for these viral illnesses. So first, I'm going to start off with just a little bit of background. Um, And I think it's really important to understand that mosquitoes are perhaps, well, not perhaps, but mosquitoes are basically the greatest uh, threat to uh, health and safety uh, globally in the the world. Uh, Mosquitoes are incredibly efficient vectors, and they spread a lot of different diseases. Uh, Every year we see around 2.7 million deaths and uh, 500 million cases just of malaria. And then we see more than 20 million dengue cases uh, in more than 100 countries, and it's estimated that um, around 40% of the world's population is at risk. I think it, it may actually be higher than that um, for these. And so other diseases that mosquitoes can spread include chikungunya, Japanese encephalitis. There is actually a vaccine for Japanese encephalitis. West Nile virus, yellow fever, um, and Zika. Very few of these uh, illnesses that are spread by mosquitoes can be prevented by vaccines. So there are only vaccines licensed in the United States for uh, Japanese encephalitis and yellow fever. And mosquito-borne diseases pose a significant health threat to nearly all travelers. So regardless of where you're traveling, it's always a good idea to take preventive measures to prevent mosquito bites. Um, Mosquito-borne diseases are common around the world, and again, I'm just really going to focus on four specific vector-borne diseases that are carried by the Aedes mosquito. And I'm going to give you a little bit of background, too, about the Aedes mosquito that can be helpful for you as you go out on your missions and to help you be good public health stewards as well and educating people about how they can limit mosquito populations around their homes. And and, and again, it's just really focusing on these four diseases today. First, a little bit of background about uh, the Aedes vector, and that's the actual mosquito. She carries uh, these different different kinds of diseases. Um, It's important to know when she uh, takes her blood meals, and she bites during the day and at night. So the mosquitoes that carry malaria are nighttime biters, but this mosquito, she bites during the day as well. So simply sleeping under a bed net is not sufficient to provide protection against the diseases that Aedes mosquito carries because she bites during daylight hours. Um, there are, there, humans are their preferred host uh, for both, uh, for both uh, Aedes aegypti and Albopictus, and they like to lay eggs in containers of standing water. And so it's important to know that because we have a lot of standing water near homes. And sometimes it's because people have bird baths. Sometimes it's because people have buckets out to collect rainwater. Sometimes it's just trash and debris in people's front yards. Aedes mosquitoes can lay eggs to reproduce in as small as a cap full. So if you have a bottle cap that's sitting outside somebody's house that's just some trash sitting there, 
and it's and it's turned upside down and it has a little bit of water in it, a mosquito, an 80s mosquito can lay eggs in there and breed more mosquitoes right next to somebody's house. Um, they tend to be pretty urban, too, in terms of their environment. They don't fly very far during the course of their lifetime. It's only about half a kilometer. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about chikungunya, and this is something some of you may be familiar with. Um, chikungunya virus is a single-stranded RNA virus, and it's an alpha virus, unlike the other viruses, which I'll be talking about later, which are flaviviruses. And here's just a picture of this. You can see um, this came from the CDC Public Health Image Library. If you ever want to teach people about chikungunya, you can get this online for free. Um, so chikungunya is caused primarily by the bite of an infected 80 species mosquito. And so, so both Egypti and Abopictus carry uh, chikungunya. There is some evidence of maternal fetal transmission of chikungunya. It's rarely transmitted um, around the time of birth, so really when babies are kind of in the birth canal. Um, and there have been no known infections of chikungunya related to breastfeeding. And CDC does encourage that women in these scenarios continue to breastfeed if they are suspected of having chikungunya, given the health implications of stopping breastfeeding and the health benefits of continuing breastfeeding. Um, we have seen evidence of chikungunya transmission via laboratory exposure, and this is typically a needle stick. Um, and there have been no known reports of chikungunya virus spread through blood transfusion, although it is uh, plausible. Um, here is a map, and I'm going to have a lot of different maps today that are going to show you where these different diseases have been found. Um, and so here the countries that are in dark green are places where we've seen current or previous local transmission of chikungunya virus. And you'll note that the United States, including Alaska, because Alaska is part of the United States, um, has been found to have evidence of local transmission of chikungunya virus. Um, but you can see here, one thing I think that's really important to know is this note that I have over on the side is that we didn't have chikungunya in, in, in even our hemisphere until 2013. So this is something that uh, came over. And most, you know, these, it's not because a mosquito came over. It's because a person came over that was infected. So um, I know sometimes people think that it's like a mosquito on a plane. It's not. Maybe a snake's on a plane, but... Um, these are really, it's when you have an infected person. And pathogens don't need passports. And this is something that we at CDC are very, very aware of. Um, chikungunya illness is usually relatively mild. Um, symptoms begin around three to seven days after someone's been bitten. And the most common symptoms, and you're going to see these a lot, because these, the clinical presentation for these four diseases tends to look very, very similar. Um, it's fever and joint pain. Um, chikungunya is kind of like dengue um, in, in that it, this, it has this joint pain component and people really complain about feeling very, very achy. Um, deng and, and I'll tell you a little bit more about dengue. But other symptoms that you'll see in a chikungunya patient include uh, headache, muscle pain, joint swelling, and rash. Most people feel better within a week. And it's, again, it's a relatively mild course of illness. Um, however, one thing that's unique about chikungunya is some people experience arthralgia for months. And uh, I got a question yesterday at another talk that we'd given was sort of what was the latest, what was the furthest out that we've seen these, you know, this long-term kind of arthritis pain um, amongst chikungunya patients. And I think that that's a, that's a question that CDC is still working to try to answer, and we're studying this, you know. It's, and you, it's always surprising to me in 2016, you'd think we know everything about all the diseases that are out there, but we are still learning new information every day. Uh, fatalities amongst chikungunya cases are pretty, they're actually relative, they're, they're rare, um, and so we haven't seen too many of those. Treatment for a chikungunya patient is going to be primarily supportive. Uh, there isn't a vaccine that's av av available to prevent chikungunya, and this, again, is where prevention of mosquito bites is your best bet.
Um, how is chikungunya diagnosed? Well, it's usually based off of clinical features and sort of where somebody went and when they went. Um, and then you can do a laboratory diagnostics using serum or plasma. We have their IgM or antibody testing. A viral culture can detect uh, the virus in the first three days of illness, and so a lot of this is going to depend on sort of when blood is taken from somebody in terms of when they first got sick. Um, and then viral RNA can usually be detected during the first eight days of illness. Um, it can be definitively excluded during the convalescent phase of, uh, of the illness. So if you take a sample from somebody it's sort of as they're getting better. And CDC actually has great guidelines that are available online um, that can help you with uh, differentiating between chikungunya and dengue and sort of talking about when you test for what um, in the course of illness. And so that's where knowing the timeline of when somebody first started to get sick is really important. Uh, now I'm going to talk a little bit more about another disease called dengue. Uh, dengue's nickname, does anybody know what dengue's nickname is? Great bone fever, that's right. Um, it's also a single-stranded RNA virus. There are four different serotypes of dengue. Dengue one, two, three, four. We were very original in naming those. Um, an infection with one serotype is not protective against others. So if you get dengue one, you can get dengue two, and dengue three, and dengue four. It's a flavivirus, as are the other pathogens I'm going to be talking about. It's closely related to Zika, yellow fever, JE, and West Nile. So dengue is something that is very, very widespread globally. We have more than 2.5 billion people on the planet that are at risk for dengue infection. Um, and the WHO actually calls dengue the world's most important mosquito-borne viral disease, uh, which, what is malaria? Is malaria viral? Parasitic, that's right. And so we have more than 200, we have more than 20 million cases in 100 countries. And so sequential infections with uh, different dengue strains. So if you were in, if you were unlucky enough to get dengue one and then two and three and four, um, you're going to be more at risk for developing severe dengue. Um, and you'll see sort of both of these terms used by CDC. You'll see sometimes we say severe dengue, and sometimes people are more specific, and they talk about dengue hemorrhagic fever and dengue shock syndrome. Um, there is a vaccine that is in development. It is not approved for use yet in the United States, but that has something that has very important public health implications and implications for you all as missionaries as you travel around the world. Uh, fatalities do occur among dengue patients, um, and these are usually when people develop severe dengue. Uh, dengue is transmitted by a mosquito. Uh, dengue is transmitted by the Aedes, uh, Albopictus, and Aegypti species. And we have documented transmission from an infected pregnant mother to a fetus, and we've also documented transmission of dengue um, via organ transplants or blood transfusion. So it's not just something that's plausible here. It's something that we've actually seen scientific evidence of occurring. Uh, this is, we have a couple of different maps that are going to show you dengue spread in the United, in, around the world. And so there's sort of two different uh, shades of green here rather than shades of gray. Um, we have, so the dark green countries, those are areas we've, where we've seen frequent or continuous transmission of dengue, and the lighter green is where it's sporadic or uncertain. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you may be wondering, why does CDC say that something is sporadic or uncertain? Well, we don't do surveillance for everything around the world in all of these other countries. That's, you know, sometimes, sometimes a country has the capacity to do surveillance and actually see if they're having cases of this. Um, and so, and, and sometimes they don't. And so that's where we sometimes can have gray areas as far as whether or not we definitively know. And sometimes diseases will uh, be eradicated from areas. Um, so you can see here we have a lot of countries in South and Central America that are showing evidence of frequent or continuous dengue transmission. 
Um, here is uh, dengue in Africa in the Middle East. You can see really we have documented transmission well in uh, Kenya and Tanzania, but there are lots of other places where we've seen evidence of sporadic cases where um, we know that the vector is, and so dengue may be there circulating in, in the population, but we haven't necessarily seen evidence of it. Um, bless you. And then we have uh, dengue in Asia and Oceania, um, the Aussies. But so we have, you know, so you can see again here, these are a lot of different places around the world where dengue is definitely a risk for you as a missionary and for the populations that you serve and the people you work with. Um, the incubation period for dengue is around four to seven days. We know that viremia is highest in the first three to four days after fever onset. And we know that the level of viremia and fever are closely co correlated. So the, when somebody's really spiking that fever, that means that their viral load is pretty intense. Um, we know that the mosquito vector can incubate dengue virus for 8 to 12 days before it can be transmitted to another human. So um, it, the, the virus essentially kind of is cooking in, in the mosquito before, uh, before the mosquito is able to spread it to somebody else. CDC has a wonderful uh, dengue clinical case management course that's available online. This is uh, eligible for continuing education requirements if you're looking to meet those. This is something that we launched, launched um, within the past three years, I believe. I think it came out in 2014. Um, and it's a really great course. I highly recommend it. It can really help you learn more about dengue and the treatment options that we have for patients and sort of what we know about the science as it stands today. It's free. It's great. You can just, you know, click it, launch it, and, and learn a ton about dengue, a lot more than I'm going to go into detail today. Um, dengue illness, the most common symptoms are really this high fever, a headache, and joint pain. And, again, that's where this nickname of breakbone fever really comes into play. Um, other symptoms that we've seen amongst dengue patients include uh, severe pain behind the eyes, so the retroorbital pain, uh, rash, and the mild. And sometimes we'll see too mild bleeding, and that's usually what you see in a patient that has um, the dengue hemorrhagic fever. And so sometimes you'll see nosebleeds, uh, gums bleeding, uh, or easily a patient that's easily bruised. And you'll see also they have kind of a petechiae rash uh, that they'll get sometimes. Most people feel better within two to seven days of uh, getting sick, and so, again, we have a sort of self-limiting course of uh, illness. Um, people that have more, people that actually develop severe dengue and have a severe dengue infections, um, you'll see as the fever declines, so it kind of looks like somebody's starting to feel better, then they'll start to develop symptoms of vomiting, abdominal pain, and then they may have uh, difficulty breathing, and so that's where you really need to keep an eye on those patients, and, you, and, and care is absolutely critical during that 24 to 48-hour 48, 48 period as somebody really kind of develops this severe dengue infection. Uh, treatment of dengue is supportive, um, and we recommend that you avoid the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, can anybody tell me why we would recommend that? Because if they're bleeding, yes. We don't want them to, we don't want to give them a medication that's going to make them bleed more. So um, if you have a patient that's complaining of a lot of joint pain and dengue is on your differential, um, that it's probably a better idea to use acetaminophen to, uh, to you know, drop that fever down and, and alleviate some of the joint pain issues um, instead of using ibuprofen or um, something else. Um, this is a screenshot of uh, the different phases of infection that result in sort of the severe dengue. And so you can see here sort of how the, when the plasma leak occurs and then sort of the reabsorption, reabsorption period uh, when that occurs. Um, you can check this out online. This is from the clinical course if, if you'd like to. I know it's kind of hard to read in this font. Um, but just more information if you're looking for it, you can find that online. Uh, now I'm going to talk about yellow fever. Um, I would bet that probably 
How many people here have actually been overseas on a mission? Okay, so that's like pretty much everybody. <laughs> um, so I would guess that probably most of the people in this room have probably had a yellow fever vaccination. And so it's, you know, some of you may be very familiar with yellow fever and the implications and requirements and things like that. And so we wanted to really bring this up again. It was important to us at CDC to talk about this because we've had recent outbreaks of yellow fever and we thought that people have questions about it. And so we wanted to reiterate that. And there have been changes with regards to um, recommendations for revaccination because a lot of people, um, you know, it's, it, we think, you know, up until a couple of years ago, we said, if you get a yellow fever vaccine, you need to get revaccinated every 10 years. And those requirements have actually changed based on uh, new data that we have regarding long-term immunity and the protection that's afforded by the vaccine, which is great. So again, uh, yellow fever is another single-stranded RNA virus. It's also a flavivirus, um, and it's closely related to dengue, Japanese encephalitis, West Nile, and Zika. Uh, it's primarily sped by primarily spread through mosquitoes, and it's uh, usually, it's actually spread, spread by two different species of mosquitoes, so uh, not just an 80s species mosquito, but also the Hemagogus uh, species mosquito. <laughs> um, we have seen evidence of maternal fetal transmission of yellow fever, and it's, but it's rare. It's rarely transmitted uh, around the time of birth. Um, and given the high levels of viremia in somebody that is ill with symptoms of yellow fever, somebody that develops yellow fever illness and is not just infected with it, um, those, we know that um, it's possible that somebody could spread uh, yellow fever to a care provider uh, via a needle stick or something else like that. But, um, uh, so there are three different transmission cycles for yellow fever, and there's sort of the sylvatic or the jungle cycle, and this is really when the virus just kind of circulates between non-human primates and mosquitoes, and so this is stuff that happens you know, way far away, and we don't ever see it because it never crosses over into the human population. Um, and then there's the intermediate sort of savanna cycle, which is really when we have that intersection between uh, the natural environment and our human and, hum and humans coming out and encroaching on that. And this is when you have humans kind of living or working in jungle border areas, and so people that sometimes go into the woods um, and that kind of thing. And that's where we may see the virus being transmitted instead of just between uh, monkeys and mosquitoes, and then it starts to bleed over into the human population. And then there's the urban cycle, which is really where most humans get infected, and this is when um, you have transmission of the virus between humans and peri-domestic mosquitoes, and this is really where we see 80 species. And this is, again, because 80s likes to live where people live, where their preferred blood meal, and so they like to live where we live so they can reproduce. Um, and that's really, again, where we see these large <coughs> urban outbreaks is when we have um, the 80s mosquito that's infected, and it's living near people's houses, and it's got easy access to a lot of different people that it can infect. Um, here you can see areas with uh, risk of yellow fever transmission in Africa, and so um, these are going to be places where uh, vaccination is recommended or it's generally not recommended. So those countries that are here in yellow, you can see this is where CDC recommends you get vaccinated for, and again, this is you know, you can, you can get this shot, and I'll talk a little bit more about sort of the different requirements for getting this uh, vaccine. Um, here you can see areas with risk of yellow fever transmission in South America. And you'll notice here, I think one thing that's really important to see is that uh, the shading on this, um, I'm not sure how well it comes across in the slides up here that you guys can see, but the shading is not limited to a specific country. And so it does go across borders, and the area within an entire country is not necessarily, you know, so it's not just I'm going to Brazil 
So I, you know, it's, I, I have to get this. I'm going to be at risk for um, yellow fever. Actually, there are places in Brazil on the coast up in the northeast where you can go where we don't see evidence of yellow fever uh, transmission. So the incubation period for yellow fever disease is around three to six days. Uh, and one thing I think that's really important to know I mean, is yellow fever has kind of this you know, mythical status in, in public health. And that's, you know, it's the, you know, you have your yellow fever vaccination card that's yellow. And we at CDC actually, we write our health information for international travel. We call that the yellow book. And part of that is because of the historical implications of yellow fever. And so we always think, oh, yellow and public health. Um, but a lot of people actually that are infected with yellow fever don't show any signs or symptoms of getting sick. So there are people that have asymptomatic or, you know, clinically inapparent infection. Um, and when people do get sick, the initial symptoms are really just kind of, again, it's this vague febrile illness. It's, you know, sometimes people just, they have, you know, fever, chills, headache, backache, myalgias, frustration, nausea, and vomiting. And then of those patients, around 15% are going to progress to the more serious toxic form of yellow fever disease. And then we have seen that we have a case fatality ratio amongst, those patient, amongst some of those patients around 20 to 50%. So when, de- so when people get sick with yellow fever and they get really sick, it has, there's, a good, there's a really critical care point there where we want to make sure that they are getting um, as much care as they can because it can turn uh, deadly quickly. The yellow fever vaccine, we have a live attenuated virus vaccine that's actually been in use since the late 1930s. Um, and a single dose, now we know, provides lifetime protection for most people. Um, and one thing that's important to know about the yellow fever vaccine is it's available only at designated vaccination centers. So it's not like you can go to your doctor at home, your general practitioner provider, and say, hey, doc, I need to get my yellow fever vaccine and because um, they're going to say, I am not licensed to give that to you. I don't have that. Um, and so CDC actually has a list of different places where you can get it available. And so if you visit our website, you can um, find near you where one of these uh, clinics is available. So, for example, like I grew up in a really small town in northeast Florida. And the first time I went overseas, I knew I needed a yellow fever vaccine. I ended up traveling around 80 miles away just to get the vaccine because my local county health department didn't carry yellow fever vaccine. And so um, this is something that's important to know, know where people can get access to these. Um, and and this, this can help you make sure people get prepared because you need to get these vaccines in advance of travel to make sure they have time for your body to mount an efficient and effective uh, immune response. Yes. Yes, if you've, had, if you've had it once, and I'm actually going to get into that in just a second, I think. And, and um, again here, too, we have another yellow fever uh, vaccine course. It's available online. It has continuing education credits. It's a very great course. It's narrated by our own wonderful Dr. Phyllis Kozarski at CDC, who is our, she's our guru of all things uh, travel medicine. Um, but it's a great course. You can take it, get some CE credits, and learn a lot more about the history of the vaccine, um, the different complications and things like that, contraindications, which I'm going to get into here in a second. But it's a really great class if you're looking to learn more about yellow fever, uh, both of the disease and the vaccine itself. Um, proof of vaccination on the International Certificate of Vaccination, or prophylaxis. This is that little yellow card that a lot of people keep typically right with their passport. Um, it's required for admission to certain countries, and so certain countries will say, if you're coming in here, uh, we need to see proof that you have been vaccinated for yellow fever. 
But as of July 2016, um, the recommendations by WHO that people did not need these boosters every 10 years, that's effective. And so yellow fever revaccination at the 10-year intervals cannot be required by countries for entry. So countries should now be accepting a one-and-done, essentially, proof of vaccination as being sufficient for you to enter their country. Um, CDC works with the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices here in the United States, and this is the ACIP you guys have probably heard of. And they approved approved a recommendation that one dose of yellow fever vaccine is going to provide, that is is going to provide this long-lasting protection, and it's sufficient for uh, most travelers. However, we recognize that specific groups of travelers should receive additional doses, and specific groups of travelers may want to consider additional doses, so essentially getting a booster. Um, And so if you want to see the most current recommendations on on yellow fever, we recommend visiting um, cdc.gov slash vaccines slash HCP slash ACIP dash Rex. So, but um, you can, you know, that's really probably the best spot to look, or you can just Google ACIP uh, yellow fever, and it will come up there, too. Some of the countries have been notified of this, because I know when we go to Ghana, you're not even, you can't even get up to the immunization counter until they look for your yellow so, so that's the thing. So the countries, they, are, they can no longer require it. And this, and this came into practice, like this recommendation came out, um, I think it was actually two years ago. Maybe it came out in 2014. Dr. Walker, do you know? Yes. So in 2014 was really when WHO said, hey, you know, we've got to stop requiring this. And, and so recently in July 2016, that was when you know, WHO said you cannot require this anymore. So countries have had two years essentially to adapt this as a, as a as a procedure, however, the actual how that may be implemented in a country is, you know, and, and so I. So they'll still require you to show your yellow card if you just don't have document. You don't have to have documentation of a booster dose, but yeah. you have to have documentation that you received the vaccine. That yellow card is still going to be necessary. Yeah. So what Dr. Walker was saying is. For those of you who couldn't hear, the idea is that you still need to have that yellow card, but they can't say you don't have a booster within the past 10 years because your vaccine is 11 years old. But you still, you know, there are countries, you still need that proof of vaccination. Um, it just doesn't have to be within the past 10 years. So. Can you give an example of one person that might want an additional dose? So I think those are primarily limited to, do you know more about? It's like immunocompromised. Yeah, so like immunocompromised individuals, so like somebody maybe that has HIV. Um, it's also if you're going to a yellow fever outbreak area. Yes. It's, uh, it's not a recommendation, but I'd say you should consider. Mm-hmm. So there, there are a couple of different um, groups that are targeted. Yeah. So, um, so sometimes one thing that's unique about yellow fever is we do have that vaccine, and as we know, vaccines uh, do sometimes have unintended. Uh, they can have they can be associated with adverse events, and so. We've docu- there have been documented pretty well severe adverse reactions that have been associated with yellow fever vaccine. Um, the first is really that we see primarily is hypersensitivity, and this is just the uh, immediate reactions that are really characterized by this rash. Uh, you may see a bronchospasm amongst those individuals. I know the last time I got a yellow fever vaccine, I just had a big red splotch on my arm, you know, and that was it. Um, 
We have also seen uh, yellow fever, uh, yellow fever vaccine-associated neurologic disease, and this is sometimes called Yelland, and this is a conglomerate of clinical syndromes, including meningoencephalitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, and cranial nerve palsies. Those are really pretty rare. And those can occur anywhere from 3 to 28 days after vaccination. So the hypersensitivity is really something that you see, you know, when somebody gets the vaccine. Um, and Yelland and Yel-AVD are something that happens you know, later on after the vaccine has been administered. So we have also seen yellow fever vaccine-associated viscerotropic disease, and this is YEL-AVD. Um, and it's similar to wild-type disease, and it often leads to multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or multi-organ failure. It can be fatal. Um, we've, seen, uh, just, we've seen at least 65 suspect or confirmed cases of this uh, reported worldwide. And again, you know, this is something that's incredibly rare. Um, we have been giving this vaccine since the late 1930s. So it's, it's an old vaccine. Um, and there have been some, ad, some obviously very severe outcomes associated with it, but those are pretty rare. Um, hypersensitivity occurs at a rate of 1.8 cases per 100,000, you know, people that got poked. Uh, we see, uh, if we're talking about yellow fever vaccine-associated neurologic disease, um, we see a rate here in the United States of, point, oh, of 0 0.8. So, again, this is occurring at a much lower frequency. Um, however, it, it does occur at higher rates in, old, in older patients that receive the vaccine. So um, amongst patients that are 60 years or older, it occurs at a rate of 1.6, and patients that are 70 years or older, uh, 2.3. Um, Yellow fever vaccine-associated viscerotropic disease, again, is very rare, 0.4 cases per 100,000 doses administered. And we see, again, here that patients that are older that are receiving the vaccine uh, may be more likely to experience these adverse events, uh, 1.0 and among 60 to 69-year-olds. And then patients that are greater than 70 years old, it's uh, 2.3 per 100,000. I'm not sure. I don't know if we know if it's higher amongst individuals that are being revaccinated, if it's a result of the revaccination or individuals that are receiving it at an older age. No. Actually, I'm not positive, but from my recollection, I think that it's usually higher in first dose administration. Yeah, yeah that's my yeah. recollection as well. Is that it tend, I do believe it does tend to be higher, actually, in that initial administration as opposed to the revaccination. Um, they do actually, you know, they actually cover that in the yellow fever course. So if you take the yellow fever course online, they speak about that. So, and I'm sorry because it's, I should know the answer to that because I have taken that course. Um, so, yeah. Since it's since it was initially approved, how has the vaccine changed? Do you know? I mean. So the CDC does, there are a list of contraindications and precautions for yellow fever vaccine. And, um, you know, so for contraindications, if somebody is allergic to a vaccine component, they're less than six months old, they have symptomatic HIV infection, um, thymus disorder, primary immunodeficiencies, somebody with cancer, um, transplant, somebody that's had a transplant, you know, these are going to be individuals who there are contraindications to administering the vaccine to them. 
Um, however, we also have, there are precautions, um, and so that's different from a contraindication. So precaution is sort of, it, it's the signal that we're not saying definitely don't give this person the vaccine. We're saying proceed with caution and uh, make, an, make an educated and informed decision with the patient about administration. So this is going to be for individuals that are six, individuals that are between six and eight months of age, uh, individuals that are over the age of 60, um, asymptomatic HIV infection, so somebody that has their HIV relatively well controlled, um, and then individuals that are pregnant or breastfeeding. Yes. So you mentioned that a booster might be considered for someone who has an immunosuppressed condition, but it's also a contraindication. Is that contraindication of primary inoculation? Or is that for, I believe it's for primary. It's for primary inoculation, and so, um, yes, it is for primary inoculation. It depends. That a lot of that actually depends on like who is who the traveler is and where they're going, and that's where you have to make you know like again, it's a decision between the clinician and the and the patient as far as why do you need this, where are you going, and considering that. So, for example, like, you know, we say a precaution of, of six to eight months. So if you have a young mom that's going back to visit friends and relatives and you know that she's taking her young baby with her, normally you would not give that young baby a yellow fever vaccine. But if they're heading into a country where there is yellow fever transmission and they're going to be in a place where the baby's at risk for yellow fever, then you need to have a discussion with that mom about, you know, what the protection, what the risks are, and then also the protection that would be afforded to the infant, because again, yellow fever can be fatal. So. Um, this is a very text-heavy slide, and this is actually taken from the CDC website, and this is with regards to the current yellow fever vaccine shortage. And so we know that the manufacturer has, has been, we've, CDC has been in conversations with the manufacturer of this particular vaccine um, because supplies of the vaccine are currently limited, which is why it's a good thing that we now have evidence to show that you don't need a booster necessarily. Um, and so there are restrictions on ordering yellow fever vaccine. So these, this is really important to know that you may need to do a little bit more planning as far as timing when you get your yellow fever vaccine if you need a booster. Um, or if you're getting your initial uh, vaccine dose. And so um, I'm not sure if anybody here actually is certified to administer the yellow fever vaccine or, or you work at a clinic where you have the license to administer the yellow fever vaccine. But basically what this, the implications that this has for you is that um, people need to plan out in advance and do their research about where they can get the yellow fever vaccine um, and not just, try, not just assume that they can get one on very short notice because uh, there is a currently a vaccine shortage on this. And they are work we're working with the manufacturer and making sure that supplies are available. Uh, now I'm going to talk about Zika. Um, this is something that I'm sure probably everybody in the room has heard of, given that it's been in the news a lot, and it's made its way, unfortunately, here to the United States. Zika, again, is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's also a flavivirus, so again, it's related to um, dengue, yellow fever, JE, and West Nile. Uh, Zika is primarily spread um, by the bite of an infected 80 species mosquito. You can see here, so you can see her here again on the right. Uh, it's spread by 80s aegypti and 80s albopictus. Uh, we have seen evidence of maternal fetal transmission. Um, we've seen it intrauterine and uh, perinatal. Um, we have seen evidence of sexual transmission from any infected partner. And so this is not something that's typically male to female, but there is the ability for females to spread it to males as well. 
Um, we've seen it spread via laboratory exposure, and we know that it is probable that it could be spread via blood transfusion, um, but we haven't seen confirmed evidence of that yet. Uh, the incubation period for Zika is uh, around 3 to 14 days, and viremia lasts a few days to a week. Um, but we, and we know that the virus can be shed in semen and urine after viremia has resolved. Uh, the latest that we've seen evidence of uh, Zika in semen has been as long as 188 days after illness onset. So it can really kind of hang out there in some of the body's protected tissues for a long time. Um, and the duration of transmissibility is something that we haven't definitively put parameters on. And this is because we're studying it. Again, this is a disease where we do not know everything about it, and we are working as hard as we can. There are literally thousands of people at CDC working on Zika constantly to, to learn everything we can about this so that we can make sure people have the information that they need. Um, but, you know, so we know that this can hang around in the body's protected tissues for a while, but we haven't seen a case, a case of sexually transmitted Zika more than just a few weeks after illness onset. But, again, we're studying more uh, and learning more about Zika every day. Um, clinical illness of Zika is usually mild. A lot of people are typically asymptomatic. Around 80% of people that are infected with Zika show no signs or symptoms. Um, but when you do get sick, again, it's got a pretty short clinical course. Its symptoms usually last less than a week, a couple of days, two or three days, maybe. Um, and the primary symptoms are fever, rash, joint pain, and conjunctivitis. And this looks, again, all of these viral illnesses typically look very, very similar in their clinical presentation. Um, severe disease requiring hospitalization um, amongst Zika patients is relatively uncommon, and fatalities from Zika are rare. We have seen a few, um, but it's generally very, very rare. Um, CDC research has found a link between uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome and Zika virus, and so uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome is a form of paralysis. We've seen in French Polynesia, we saw 38 cases of uh, GBS amongst an estimated 28,000 people. And we did a case control study that found a strong association between GBS and previously having Zika. And so there's sort of this link. Um, you know, we can't, prove, we can't prove causality with these things because in order to prove causality, we would have to deliberately infect somebody with Zika. And I know sometimes people think that the CDC is not that great, but I promise we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> We've also seen a case series from seven different countries, and this is related to the current outbreak in the Western Hemisphere, and we saw an increase in the incidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, between a 100% increase and an 877% increase. So there's definitely a link there between uh, Zika and GBS. Um, we've also seen brain ischemia, meningoencephalitis, and acute myelitis that complicates the Zika virus infection. Uh, those have also been reported amongst patients infected with Zika. Um, the incidence of Zika virus infection in pregnant women is not known, and infection can occur in any trimester because pregnant women can be bitten by a mosquito as, at any point during their pregnancy, as long as there is a mosquito around. Um, there's no evidence of more severe disease amongst pregnant women relative to non-pregnant women, um, and there's no evidence of increased susceptibility amongst pregnant women. Congenital Zika syndrome um, is primarily linked to micro, uh, microcephaly and intracranial calcifications and other brain anomalies, eye anomalies, and then also we've seen uh, physical anomalies that have been linked to this, and this is, you know, clubfoot, uh, muscle contractures, and things like that. Um, here you can see some of the congenital Zika syndrome brain anomalies. Um, you can see the calcifications on the different, you know, there's the brain, the 
You can see the differences in the brain tissue, how much smaller things are, and also just the different lesions in there. Um, there have been a lot of adverse outcomes linked between uh, Zika virus infection and illness and um, pregnancy. It's been linked to miscarriage and stillbirth. Um, however, we don't have enough evidence to confirm Zika as a cause, but this is, again, something that we are actively studying. Um, we've seen a lot of problems related to brain injury with uh, Zika virus, so we have these eye abnormalities. Um, some of the infants have hearing impairments. Some of them, some of them are deaf. Um, seizures. Uh, difficulty swallowing, difficulty feeding, um, and so then that's, you know, you're going to see failure to thrive, uh, limb abnormalities, uh, severe irritability amongst the infants, um, developmental delay, and a lot of growth abnormalities. And these babies are um, really just being born in the past, you know, year or so, and uh, so we're studying them as they continue to grow and looking to see sort of how their developmental course unfolds. And so we're learning more about Zika, uh, unfortunately, um, as these babies continue to grow. So CDC does not recommend testing for asymptomatic men, women, or sorry, sorry men, children, and women who are not pregnant. Um, but we recommend, you know, if your patient is experiencing or has recently experienced symptoms of uh, Zika, and, you know, you, especially if you have somebody with this travel history, we recommend these, you know, or if you have an asymptomatic pregnant woman. So, um, you know, you ask the question, do you live in a place where there's Zika, or have you recently traveled to a place with Zika? And if the answer is yes, you know, even if you have an asymptomatic pregnant woman who has traveled to a place with Zika, CDC says that's who, you know, they should get tested. There are important implications for Zika virus infection um, for pregnant women. Um, and if the patient has, and there's also this issue, too, of partners. So if you have a couple where, um, one, you know, for example, uh, the wife may be pregnant, she's here in the U.S., and, you know, she lives in Minnesota, um, and then you have a husband who, you know, travels down to the Dominican Republic or Haiti, and, um, you know, he's coming back and forth, he, he could potentially expose her uh, via semen. Um, and so that's somebody who you may want to test for uh, Zika as well, based on this algorithm right here. Um, all pregnant women should be asked at each prenatal care visit if they have, you know, traveled or, or lived in a place with Zika um, during their pregnancy or prior to um, getting pregnant. And then you also want to ask if they've had unprotected uh, sex with a partner who's either traveled to or lived in an area without Zika. Um, and so pregnant women who have a possible exposure to Zika either via travel or where they live or if they have a partner that has gone to a place where they could have been infected, um, those are going to be people who are those are going to be women who are eligible for testing for uh, Zika virus infection. Um, the interim here you can see our interim guidance for reproductive age travelers, and this is something that um, we recommend keeping an eye on. Just again, as we learn more about this, because the temporal window has expanded um, slightly from when we first. Start, when we first noticed this link between Zika virus infection and these adverse pregnancy outcomes. Um, so for women that have possible exposure to Zika, we recommend that they wait at least eight weeks after symptom onset or last possible exposure. And for men, um, it's six months. So that's a long time. And so people need to know about this because, I mean, the, again, the implications of infecting a pregnant woman with Zika are very, very significant. Um, and then if you have people that are... Uh, living in or traveling to areas with Zika, 
and they have they have a positive Zika test. We have recommendations for that. And then um, if no testing is performed, so you don't have results on whether or not somebody's been infected with Zika, or if they um, you know had a negative test, uh, we rec- we have different recommendations there. And this is really for people um, that are planning their pregnancies and trying to trying to engage actively in family planning. So. Here you can see all countries and territories with active Zika virus uh, transmission. The first cases in Brazil were actually identified in 2015. So this is something that I can actually still remember getting one of the first emails about it that, you know, was sort of saying, hey, there's, you know, somebody, there's there's Zika in Brazil. Um, And knowing that the implications for that as far as it's a, you know, it's a mosquito-borne disease and it can spread pretty quickly. Um, and so here you can see where we have reported active Zika virus transmission. Um, the countries in orange are places where we've seen it, and this map is current as of the 23rd of September. Um, so do keep an eye on this because it is updated as we are able to document transmission in other places. Again, um, pathogens don't need passports, and, and neither do sick people. Well, sick people need passports, but, um, you know, I mean, these, these, there, there's, there's definitely the opportunity for this to spread more. Um, so the differential diagnosis for this is, uh, can be rather broad, and they have a lot of typical clinical features, and so they, there's a lot of overlap with, for, for dengue, chick, leptospirosis, malaria, rubella, measles, parvovirus, enterovirus, adenovirus, uh, Zika, and, you know, a bunch of other um, alphaviruses. And a lot of this is just somebody comes to you and they say, I have a fever. I don't feel good. My joints hurt. I feel achy. And, and so this is where it can be really tough to kind of differentiate between these different um, diseases. And that's why mosquito bite prevention is so, 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 so important for all of us as travelers. Mosquito bite prevention is critical. Um, CDC Travelers Health, we do post updates on regional disease transmission patterns and outbreaks. So if you've never been to our website, I definitely recommend it. It's cdc.gov travel. Um, you can find information there specifically for a particular destination. We have over 245 country destinations listed now. Um, and we have specific recommendations for different types of travelers. So if you are a pregnant or breastfeeding traveler, we have recommendations that are specific for you. If you are going to engage in humanitarian aid, as a lot of you do travel for, um, we have specific recommendations for you and to, to help you be safe and healthy while you're over there because we know that you cannot get your job done if you are sick and we don't want you to get sick. Um, other recommendations that we have are really to wear clothing that minimizes exposed skin. So this is, you know, long sleeve, long pants. I know it's hard when it's hot. You, the last thing you want to do is put on a long pair of pants, um, you know, but, it, but really that's going to provide you a lot of protection. Use permethrin-treated clothing and gear, you know, so if you have a tent that you sleep under, you know, making sure that's treated with permethrin. Um, this is, permethrin is a product that you can find in, you know, lots of different places. You can find it at REI. I've ordered it off of Amazon. You can find it at Walmart. You can find it at Gander Mountain. You know, your big, your, your sporting goods stores, they typically sell it. It's a great product because, um, especially if you're going on a shorter-term mission, you can treat your clothing and kind of forget it. Um, because it lasts for a couple of different washes. Look and see on the, on the manufacturer's instructions and see how long it will last and pay attention to that because it doesn't last forever. Um, but it can really provide you a lot of great short-term protection. Um, so definitely do that. And it's cheap. It's cheap. Like, it's really cheap. Sorry. <laughs> Run out of time. Um, Stay and sleep in an air-conditioned room or screened room if you can. Use a bed net if you're sleeping in an area where you can or get, you know, pop-up bug hut. 
uh, empty and really to empty standing water that's uh, near where you're staying. So getting rid of standing water near your house because um, you know you don't want you don't want to provide a place where these mosquitoes can breed and bite. Um, we recommend using insect repellent products that have one of the following effective ingredients. So DEET, which is not for babies under two months of age. Uh, Picaridin, uh, oil of lemon eucalyptus, which is also not for use on kids that are under the age of three. Um, IR3535, and then uh, this, this one is a new one for um, our, our recommendations. It's this uh, methyl non-ketone. Um, so if you can find a mosquito repellent that has that. None of these are Avon Skin So Soft, so that is not one we recommend. Um, and use your insect repellent as it's directed, and that's going to mean reapplication. Re um, and if you have a baby that is going to be traveling, use mosquito netting around them. Put them in long sleeves and pants um, to make sure that their skin is protected to limit their mosquito bite exposure. Um, if you get sick, see your healthcare provider and tell them that you traveled and where you went. That's so, so important. Um, but really, honestly, prior to the 2014 Ebola outbreak, most clinicians did not ask if people had, had traveled, and that was not a common question, and people didn't necessarily think to disclose their travel history. Um, but that is actually really important. You know, up to a year after you travel, especially for something like if you've been to an area with malaria, you need to disclose uh, that travel history, say where you went, you know, what medications you took, and, and share that with your provider. Um, and if you go to an area with Zika, uh, wear mosquito repellent for three weeks after you come back to the United States because we'd like to keep it over there and not have it here. And this is because, you know, again, it's the, sick, it's, it's the person with the virus in them that can travel to the states, you know, and get bitten by a mosquito, and then that mosquito can then transmit it to somebody else. We don't want you to get bitten. Over that three-week period, try to be really good about wearing mosquito repellent then. Um, and then these, pregnancy rec these recommendations for pregnancy delay. So family planning is really important in this, and I know this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people, but, again, the implications um, – of Zika virus infection in pregnant women are very, very uh, significant. Um, there's a lot of cross-reactions amongst these flaviviruses, and so, again, this is why it's really important to think about, you know, prevention of mosquito bites. That's really your best bet. And treatment course doesn't differ based on uh, what particular infection a person has. Um, and so really keeping an eye on it, this is supportive care, you know, staying away from non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and, and that's really where you're going to be focusing your efforts. And, and working with, you know, know, know how to reach your local health department and talk to them about testing because they're going to be the ones that would help you coordinate that if you're providing care back here in the United States. And that is all the time I have. And I, have a, I think I have time for a few, maybe I can ask, answer a few questions or we can talk afterwards. Any surveillance information from uh, the Olympics, uh, the effectiveness of their control methods or Zika transmission? So I am not – so – CDC actually has um, a network of – we have a cooperative agreement that we support that's an international network of uh, travel medicine clinics. And the question was about Zika virus amongst people that went to the Olympics. And I don't believe we've seen any cases. Um, we've seen, yes, the athletes have actually been very closely surveyed, and they, we have not seen any cases amongst them. So, um, yes. And then reemerge. We have no evidence to indicate that if you've got dengue, that it's sort of hid out in, in your body somewhere. Um, we have no evidence of that that I'm aware of. So, given the novelty of kind of the, um, the overlap between the viruses, mm -hmm. um, do you have to know like, how this related to the screening? Not offhand, <laughs> but um, 
But so if you there there are different diet you can look at you can look that up and it's and the testing is really complicated because there are flaviviruses and and you can potentially get false positives um, just if somebody's been vaccinated with yellow fever and, you know because it will it'll say oh there's a flavivirus here um, and so that and so the testing is really complicated I don't know offhand the positive predictive value for the different tests unfortunately yes. Um, no, unfortunately, there isn't. And it's hard because, um, you know, we've, there have been a lot of questions about uh, looking at, um, you know, because other countries don't necessarily have good surveillance on microcephaly. Microcephaly was not a reportable condition. Um, and so we are, and, and there is a possibility that some of these microcephalic babies, um, you know, the microcephaly was caused by something else. But we have enough evidence to suggest that Zika virus uh, Puts, puts babies at risk for this. So with regards, so that's a tough question to answer regarding endemicity in other countries because, again, the surveillance has just not been there. And so we're trying to learn as much as we can, and we'll learn, and, and, and unfortunately that's one of the outputs of, of this current outbreak situation is we're learning more about it and sort of, you know, if there's, so we know like dengue follows kind of a three-year cycle in terms of spikes in cases and then it goes away or, or it drops in terms of um, how many cases you see. But it's, we're really just still learning a lot about that. So, And we're working with other countries to help them do surveillance so we can actually have a, a better understanding of, um, you know, what happens when a country is endemic with uh, Zika. So uh, given that this is a Christian conference, um, with us, as we see patients coming back from countries, maybe they're pregnant. Uh, what's the utility in testing an asymptomatic pregnant woman if, like, abortion is not an option? I think there, that's a very personal conversation between a patient and her provider, um, and that relates to a lot of other different issues. As a developmental psychologist, I would say that there's value in having the mother, um, even if she decides, if, if abortion is not an option for her, um, she may still find value in knowing that her baby um, may be born with uh, complications, and that allows the family to be better prepared and actually equipped and, under and you know, networking with resources. I mean, there's a having a baby um, that's born that's differently abled in any way um, is something that is very complicated, and if you can help a family be more prepared for that then I think that that's an area where clinicians have a real opportunity. Yes? A question about uh, potential travel risk for pregnant women. In the United States, is listed as a transmission country. <coughs> Most of my patients have been to the United States. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there we have, um, and that's really linked to South Florida, and, and specifically Miami, and particular geographic regions within Miami. And you can find more information about transmission in the United States, um, specifically in, and it's, you know, we haven't seen a documented local transmission in North Carolina or Georgia, um, you know, but it's something that we are doing a lot of surveillance for because we want to see if we're seeing, we have seen sexually transmitted cases here in the United States. Um, and we have seen local transmission, but the local transmission has been geographically limited to currently um, just this, you know, this part of Miami. Um, and so that's, and so, I mean, if you're going to Orlando, 
are you at risk? Well, we haven't seen documented local transmission there. So, but if you were going to Miami, that's where I think people would want to know. Uh, there, not that I've seen as far as a link between severity of symptoms and uh, maternal outcome, and, or sorry, birth outcomes. So, um. all right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And thank you.